So one of the uh, offshoot thoughts I had as I was uh, studying and meditating upon these first 17 verses of the 13th chapter of, of John is uh, a well-worn phrase that we hear very often in, in movies, everything from uh, Legally Blonde to A Few Good Men and all kinds of TV shows, uh, suits and other ones, anything to do with the law. And it's this phrase, you have been served. Kind of has its roots in legal stuff. And I don't know if you really said, you know, the bailiff comes along and you've been served. But, but that's kind of in the movie. And we know that this little phrase, you've been served, that once that, that is said, something different is going to happen. It usually happens at a very uh, comedic uh, turn in the movie or, or, or something dramatic is going to happen. But what we know is that something different in the lives of the characters in the movie or the TV show, something different is going to happen now that they have been served. It demands a response. Once you've been served, you have to react. You have to respond. Well, uh, we're going to look today at love-fueled, humble service. And the reason we're going to do that is that it's the, the action of Jesus. That, this is going to be really tough. I'm going to be able to walk a little bit, you know, over this. <laughs> it's the action of Jesus that this love-fueled, humble service that demands of us some kind of a response. And so we're back into, into John chapter uh, 13 now. And you might remember, as we've been going through this, that the book of John is kind of divided into two major halves. And really, it's like two-thirds and one-third. But, but the first part of the book, chapters... Um, uh, 1 through 10, really are, are called the book of signs. And you've seen this as we've gone along. There's these seven signs that Jesus does. And they, they ask the question, do you believe? It's all evidence of Jesus being who he claims to be, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And he does these miracles. These things happen. And then there's this question, uh, do you believe? And then we have the center section of the story of Lazarus. And now we start in chapter 13. And it's what's called the book of glory. And it really is the last part of, of the gospel of John. It all has to do with the last week of Jesus' life. And we're going to begin this book of glory now as we continue this study through it. And we'll see that what we're going to read today really sets the tone for the rest of the book. And it's this tone of love-fueled humble service. The whole rest of the book is going to be hammering again and again and again. We see in the life of Jesus that you've been served. You've been served by the Son of God with love-fueled, humble service. So, let's take a look at the passage. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, or he loved them to the utmost, some of your translations will have. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. That work had already begun. The prompting had happened. Hadn't come quite to fruition yet, but this work had begun in Judas's heart. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God, and he was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. And he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had wrapped around him. We're familiar with this story, many of us. 
And he came to Simon Peter and said to him, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And the way in which he does it is not kind of like, the, the tone is not a question. Are you going to wash my feet? It's like, surely you're not going to wash my feet, Jesus. It's more that kind of a tone. And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. You're not going to serve me in this way. And Jesus said, listen, unless I wash you, then you'll have no part in me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. But Jesus answered, look, those who have had a bath only need to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean. Though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said, not every one of you is clean. When he finished washing their feet, he put his clothes on, and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for, for that's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You see what's happening here? It's like Jesus has been saying to these people and been saying to us, you have been served. And now you have to respond to that service. Somehow my service of you is placing a demand on your life that your life has to be somehow different from now on in. You have to respond to this act of service. Now he sets that up, John does, by telling us a few things first. There's some things that Jesus knew. The first thing it says that Jesus knew is that he knew his hour had come. It said, just before Passover, and Jesus knew his hour had come. Now, when you read that just before Passover, what John wants us to do is, is very, very important. He wants us to take whatever it is that we understand about Jewish Passover, that whole feast, remember that whole deal? Remember that, you know, the slaves in Egypt, and they kill uh, the, the sacrificial lamb, and they take the lamb, and they put the blood of the lamb uh, on the doorpost, and then the angel of death uh, crossed over Egypt, but wherever the blood of the lamb was, death passed over that household. Anybody that was in there, a Jew or Egyptian, that came under the protection of the blood of the lamb, all those things, it passed over. Why? So that the people would be set free from their slavery. So all of that understanding of Passover is getting dragged into this little phrase. And John's trying to say, listen, whatever you understand about Passover, understand that that is now going to come to fulfillment in what Jesus is doing at this Passover time. This is the third Passover that the Gospel of John records. But this one's a little different. Because John said, now the hour of Passover is coming, and Jesus knew that his hour had come. Have you noticed through the Gospel of John that this phrase, his time is not yet, his hour is not come, it started off in the, it, it, way back there when the 
turning the water into wine. Remember that whole deal? And his mom comes from, hey, you know, Jesus is the run out of wine, all this sort of stuff. And Jesus' response is, his mother, don't you know, my time is not yet here. My hour hasn't come yet. And as you go through the Gospel of John, you'll see it again and again. They try to kill him, but they can't grab him because his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. And John is building this up. And now finally, at this final Passover, Jesus says, all right, boys, this is it. My time has come. I understand that I am on a mission. I've been sent by the Father to accomplish something, and now the time for me to bring that mission to its climax is upon us. This mission of saving the entire world by the sacrifice of myself, this mission is now about to be accomplished. It's now about to be completed because my hour has come. And in just a few hours from him saying these words, Jesus would be crucified and laid in a tomb. And three days later would rise again so that he would be ascended into heaven and enthroned at the right hand of God to function as our priest until he returns, pleading our case, praying for us, caring for us, ministering to us. Now the whole point of, the, of John laying this out, that there's some things that Jesus knew and that he knew his hours come, is he's trying to say, listen, listen, listen. Jesus is in control of this whole thing. Satan might be plotting. Judas might have his heart turning. He might think that he's going to have the say of betraying God. But he doesn't. Jesus has authority over the situation. And God himself is now saying, now my hour has come. Now it's going to happen. All those other times, they wanted to seize me. They wanted to grab me. They wanted to make me a false king. They wanted to kill me. My hour hasn't come, but now I'm going to enter into this because I have authority over the circumstances of my life. And it's important that we get this whole thing that Jesus had authority because he makes it very, so he makes it very plain, not just in that subtle way, but in verses 3 where he says, listen, the Father has put all things under me, all authority, all power now less in my hands. It's all under me. And then chapter 13, listen, you call me teacher and Lord because that's what I am. That's who I am. All authority rests in me. And it's crucial we understand that. Because if we don't understand how much authority Jesus has as the Son of God, as God over all, as controller of the history of the universe, then we don't get the point of what he does with that authority. He serves. And he serves because he loves. The third thing that Jesus knows is that he loves. You know, it's one of the big shifts that happened here in the Gospel of John. Love all of a sudden begins to come up as the main theme of these last chapters. You know, between chapters 13 and 17, or this great teaching section of, of Jesus, before he goes into the crucifixion, before, in those five chapters, love happens 31 times. 31 times Jesus talks about love. You know how many times in the previous 12 chapters he talked about love? Six. Six. One of the things that, that Scott challenged me on, and, uh, and uh, turned out he was right, I hate that when he's proven wrong. <laughs> because, you know, for me, you know, John is the gospel of love, and, you know, you know the older you get, the more you just, want to, you just want to love. You don't want to fight, and all that. you just want to love, you know, all these things. So, you know, gospel of John love, kind of like all that whole thing, and, and we know that, and kind of in this last little bit, I know love is a big thing, but, but Scott was saying, look, in all this whole thing of the book of the science, God talks a lot more about judgment. 
And all these parables he's doing have to do with judgment. He's constantly bringing this up, and he finally wore me down, and I realized, oh, you're probably right about that. And in this whole little first section here is that what Jesus says is that, listen, I'm going to give you all this evidence. I'm going to give you all of these signs. I'm going to lay all these things out to you, and I'm going to ask you the question, do you believe this? Because if you believe this, then good things happen. If you don't believe this, then the good things of God become restricted in your life and for all eternity. But now we get into the book of signs. You could almost call it the book of love because now all of a sudden, Jesus begins to emphasize this whole thing about love. Not only because of the frequency of the use of it in these next five chapters, this whole 31 times, but John even says, Jesus knew that he loved them to the end or to the utmost. And scholars kind of debate what it means by that because it can mean a couple of things. It can mean to the end, like there's no end to Jesus' love, to the utmost, there's no limit to it. Or it could mean that, you know, Jesus is going to love people right to the very end. Even when they nail him on a cross, he is still loving them. He loves them until the end of his life. Well, of course, you know, I want to argue, because John does this so often, for both meanings. Jesus loves you and loves us to the utmost. He couldn't possibly love us anymore. He loves his people. He loves his disciples. He loves you and he loves me to the absolute utmost, so much that he would lay down his life for us. He lays down his life even for those who are his enemies and he knows are going to betray him and deny him. But he loves them to the utmost and he loves them to the end of his life. He loves them and loves you and loves me until the task is completed. You see, the same word that he loves them to the end kind of happens when Jesus hangs on the cross and he says, it is finished. Same root word. It's completed. It's completed. My mission has been completed and achieved. The way of salvation and fellowship and friendship and healing has been laid out. He loves to the utmost, including Judas. His love is unconditional. There is no end to the depths that he will stoop. There is no time limit on how long he will love you. There is no person that he will not serve and love. He loves to the end, to the utmost. Absolutely. And it's because he knew that he loved that Jesus undertakes this action. So what does he do? Love-fueled, humble service. Love-fueled, humble service. He became this humble servant. You see, in the Bible, uh, humility and love are not just attitudes that we hold. They are actions that we undertake. They are, in fact, characteristics which become the very essence of who we are as we follow Jesus in his way because he is this humble servant and humility and love is something that is lived out because that has been changed in the core of our hearts because God by his spirit has changed it so what does this humble servant do he washes the feet of disciples now we've heard many times I know if you've been around the Bible much at all that this whole thing of washing somebody's feet is, is a humiliating thing. It was, the, it was an act and a task that slaves did. And the lowest slave in the household. As a matter of fact, in Jewish law, if, if, if you had a Jewish slave, somebody had become enslaved to you and that was a fellow Jew, you could not require them to wash feet. 
You could require a Gentile slave to wash feet. You were not allowed to, allow, to force a Jewish slave to wash feet. It just is this demeaning, lowly, humble act to wash someone's filthy feet. There was an exception. And the exception to it being only a slave that could wash feet is you could do it as an, as an outstanding act of love and humility. In fact, I was reading that, I'd never heard this before, but, but there's, a, there's a Jewish law case. Rabbi Ishmael. Rabbi Ishmael, he lived, it was after Jesus by a good bit. It was in the next century. But, but he, he was this, this famous rabbi, and you can read all about him. But his mother was very proud of this boy. And so one time, uh, this rabbi, you know, the, his mother wanted to wash his feet. But this rabbi, this great rabbi said, no, you can't, you're not going to refuse to let his mother wash his feet because it was too humiliating. It was too embarrassing. And this was his mother. And, and it, there's no way, mom, you're not going to wash my feet. You know, you're not going to do it. But the mother took him to rabbinical court. Can you imagine taking your son to court? And the reason he appeared before the rabbis, now this Ishmael, he was a very, very famous rabbi. He's one of the ones that, that laid down the 13, you don't care about that, rules of hermeneutics. Anyway, very famous rabbi. And so when his mother came in, they had seen this local before, why on earth is this great rabbi's mother taking his son to court? And then they heard the case. And the mother said, I want to wash my son's feet because I love him and I want to honor him. And, and this is the most profound way that I can do it. And so the rabbi court got together and they told Ishmael, yeah, you've got to let your mom wash her feet because she loves you and she wants you to honor you in this way even though normally that would never be allowed. And so Jesus takes this incredible act of slavery, of humble service, and because he is driven, he's got this love-fueled, humble service, because he's driven by love, he washes the disciples' feet. And it's shocking stuff to the disciples. And it should be shocking stuff to us. We don't get it because it's kind of familiar to us now. But Jesus' right response to say, listen, all authority and all power has been given to me. All status has been given to me. All privilege has been given to me by the Father. And what I'm going to do with that is I am going to act out radical, irrational, shocking service. That is the way of Jesus, and that should be the way of those of us who follow Jesus. That any power we have, any authority we have, any privilege we have, any status that we have, we lay it down in radical, irrational, even shocking service. Because the one who had authority over all things, the one who is called teacher and Lord, takes on the dress and the action of a slave. And what we understand is happening here, because we know the rest of the story, is that what Jesus is doing is it's just a foretaste of the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate service that he's going to perform. In just a few hours, he's going to die the death of a slave. Roman citizens couldn't be crucified. Decent people were killed in other ways. It was the slaves that were crucified. And Jesus is saying, listen, what I'm doing now, this act of a slave, this act of, of love, this act of service, 
it's just a foretaste, and you're not really going to understand everything that means until the ultimate act of service, when, like a slave, I am crucified and despised and spat upon and looked down upon as I serve you in this ultimate way. So Jesus knew these things about him, and so what did he do? He became this humble servant. And then secondly, what he does is he challenges his followers. He challenges his followers, first of all, to allow me to serve you. And then he says to them, and now that I've done that, and now that I've set this example, I need you to do what you have done. I need you to allow your love to fuel humble service in your life too. Radical, irrational, shocking service. You've seen me do it. You've benefited from it. And now I want you to live that kind of life too, Peter, John, Alan, Sheena. You've been served, says Jesus. And now I demand of you some kind of a response. And hopefully the response that you have is my expected response. My expected response is, first of all, that you would be served. That you would allow me to serve you, says Jesus. That you would allow me to make you clean. Now, this is a tough thing. Do you notice what Peter does? He tries to resist Jesus serving him. He says, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. What are you doing? That's craziness. I should be washing your feet. I should have done it already. No, don't, you know, don't wash my feet. And Jesus says, listen, if you don't let me serve you, if you don't let me do in you and for you what needs to be done, then you have no part of me. If you don't let me serve you, you don't have me. And so Peter says, well, then not just my feet, but my hands and my head, my feet are all of me. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Uh, those who have had a bath, you only need your feet washing because you are already clean. Now, that, now, let me just pause and do a bit of a nerd moment. If you think this through, that's kind of weird for Jesus to say to him that you're already clean. Why? Because the cross hasn't happened yet. So how is he made clean before Jesus has been on the cross? Well, the idea is this. He is made clean because of the best of his ability to what had happened in Jesus' mission so far. He trusted in that. He had believed in that. Because you see, this is the essence of our response to the service of Jesus, to place our trust, to place our hope, to place our faith in him. And ultimately, Jesus is going to die on the cross, and then that faith and that trust and that hope is placed in the death and resurrection of Christ. But for now, he says, listen, you, you trust me. And because you trust me, because you follow me, because you've given yourself to me, you are already clean. You've been made clean. And so for us, Jesus comes to us and he says, listen, I want you to allow me to serve you. I want you to let me make you clean. I want you to allow me to wash your sin away. I want you to allow me to be the humble servant and to put down your pride and to think that you can be a good enough person, that you can be a nice enough person, that you can do well enough and all of those different things, or that, you know, you know well, I know I'm too humble. I, you know, why would God care about me? Jesus comes and says, listen, I want you to let me serve you. I want you to let me make you clean. I want you to put your faith in the death of a slave. The death of a man. The death of the Son of God. The death of God himself. And then I want you to maintain that relationship of cleanliness 
but allowing me not only to give you that bath of ultimate forgiveness, but to wash your feet as you confess your sins, as you go through life. And each day come before Jesus and say, Jesus, I know I messed up there. I thank you for your forgiveness. I want to maintain this pure relationship with you. And so I confess again my need for you. And then Jesus wants us to allow him and invite him to serve us in other ways. It's the question that Jesus asked, are you open to receiving the transformative love and service that he offers? Because what he's doing is it's a call for us to surrender our pride, our preconceptions, and our self-sufficiencies in our daily life and invite Jesus to come into the decisions and the actions and the pressures and the joys and the sorrows that we experience. And not to think that we, you know, we're called to live this stop-up lift and just carry on. No, to Jesus says, no, I want to be involved in these things. Let me come and serve you in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of your grief, in the midst of your worry, in the midst of your fear. Allow me to come and walk along with you in these ways. I'm amazed at how often I want to do and solve things myself. How I want to figure it out for myself. How I want to just use my own abilities, my own intellect, my own energy, my own whatever to get things done and not invite Jesus into the midst of those decisions and actions. Because I don't know why. You know, I realized this, I was thinking about this, you know, I pray for other people a lot more than I pray for myself. And it's not because I'm such a nice guy. It's because I'm full of pride. And I don't like the idea that, no, I need, to, I need Jesus' wisdom, I need Jesus' strength, I need Jesus' guidance, I need Jesus' comfort, I need Jesus' encouragement, I need Jesus' prompting in all of the things of life. I need to bring Jesus into those things. And then once we have received the service of Jesus, once Jesus comes and says, all right, Alan, you have been served, then Jesus says, Alan, now you are responsible to respond with love-fueled, humble service. That needs to be the earmark of your life. This is how Jesus ends for us. With a call for us to do as he does, to be as he is, to live lives of love-fueled, humble service, service that is radical, irrational, and even shocking. And irrational and huge and big and shocking, shocking not because it's so huge, not because we've accomplished these big, massive things and, and solved uh, Gaza and solved the Ukraine and solved that, not because we've done those things, but shocking because those things are so small. And they're just so much a part of our everyday life. Shocking because it's self-sacrificial. And shocking because it's who we've become. Just naturally, it just, it, it just happens to us. We just, we just live these love-fueled, humble, service lives. But why do we do that? What's the motivation for that? What drives that? Well, well, first of all, I think there's at least, at least four things. There's probably more, but four things as I looked at this passage that, that, that should drive this in my life and, and, and perhaps in your life too. And the first is, obviously, because of love. Because God's love flows through us. And we wash the feet of those we love. 
you know, she and I have been really blessed in this last week by this, by this fellowship and the love shown us. You know, I sprained my ankle. got my boo-boo here. I'm hobbling along. And, and several people have walked my dogs. That's a huge thing because I have an Airedale. And Airedales are high-energy dogs. And if they don't get proper exercise, the house gets wrecked. So far, there's only one piece of pottery decoration that Sheena's had to sacrifice to it. Acts of service, foot washing. Sheena's dad died on Tuesday. Man of faith, so it was a good thing, you know, in the sorrow and stuff, but man of faith and prayer and of love. And several people dropped off meals. Washing our feet. Acts of love. And so we, we live these lives of, of self-sacrificial, humble love, lives because of love. Secondly, because verse 16 says, and this is the one that shocked me. Oh, man. Because what verse 16 says is, Alan, if you're not into this humble service, that's because you think you're greater than Jesus. Whoa, wait a minute, Jesus. But that's what he says. He says, listen, you call me Lord and Master, and that's good because that is who I am. But you know what? The servant is not greater than the master. And the messenger is not greater than the one who sends the message. And so when you don't live, Alan, these kind of lives of self-sacrificial love, when you don't do these small things, when, you, when you're really only interested in the grand gestures, that's actually your heart saying that you think you're a little bit better than me, that you're placing yourself above me, the master, and me, the one who sends the message. I didn't like that prior time. Because it's... Shocking to me how often I put myself in that spot. You know, there's lots of times that God opens my eyes to see some little need that I walk past. And very often I come in the morning, I'm usually the first one here, you know, because I have these prayer meetings at 6.30, so I'm usually there, you know, pretty early. And, you know, there's garbage in the parking lot. And I notice it sometimes. But I'm ashamed to tell you that, man, I pick it up, I don't know, maybe 40% of the time. And this time I just kind of think, ah, well, you know, pretend not to see it, or the wind will blow it away, or somebody will pick it up. Yeah. How will you pick it up, Alan? And I didn't even get into the stairwell back here where the downtown community goes down there and does all kinds of nasty stuff. And every once in a while I'll go down and clean it up, most of the time, I leave it for less, who cleans it up all the time. And when I do that, when I know that these little things, and the Spirit lays on my heart, because it makes me notice it, makes me think about it, that's the prompting of the Spirit. When I don't follow through, it's because I'm putting myself above Jesus. And I don't want to do that. So we serve in this way, these, these, these love-fueled, humble service that's irrational, even shocking, because we love, because verse 16 says, no, no, I'm doing it, and you are my servant, so you need to do it too. And thirdly, because Jesus says, listen, if you do it, then you're going to be blessed. 
hey, be a little selfish. Serve somebody so you get the blessing. I don't know. <laughs> it's the first time that John uses this word blessed in the gospel. And he says, you know what? You'll be blessed if you serve, if you live a love-fueled, humble life of service. First of all, because Christ is going to be formed in you. Because that's what Jesus does, because that's what, who Jesus is. And as we act in service, as we live out these lives, as the Spirit prompts us and directs us, God forms us into the image of Christ. And service becomes not what we do, but who we are. And sometimes we're blessed for it because we see kingdom work is accomplished, like our brother John shared with us today. He served. A little bit of service, a little bit of conversation. How are you doing? Oh, you go to the club. Oh, you play football. Oh, you're going to come to Jesus and live forever. And honestly, it feels good when we serve. I mean, you don't even have to be this, some religious fanatics like we are. I mean, all the psychologists will tell you that one of the best ways to feel good about yourself and make yourself happy and live a happier life is, in, is when you serve other people. I mean, it's just a, a reality that God created us that way. It's one of the blessings that God has laid upon us. And of course, when we live that life under the power of the Spirit, then we come to the end of our days and the living God, the God who created all things, the God who whispers and mountains shatter, the God who looks and rivers change their course, the God who speaks and kingdoms rise and fall. We stand before that God and he says, well done, faithful servants. You know, when uh, Roy was dying there, we, we were blessed. We got to be there when he actually died. And it was such a thing, you know, as I was praying for Roy in those last breaths, to know that he was going to hear that. Well done, good and faithful servant. I can't tell you all the hidden acts of service that that man did through his life. It's a blessing when we serve. And fourthly, we serve because that's what the church is. It's the mark of the church, or at least it should be. That any authority, any power, any wealth, any status, any privilege, any whatever that the church has is given up in sacrificial service. It's, it should be the mark of the church. And I'll tell you how John points that out to us. I hadn't really realized this, but Rick Watts pointed out, and it's this, that in the Gospel of John, this is the Lord's Supper, you know, and in the other Gospels, they talk a lot about the table. We talk a lot about the table here all the time, that it's the center of worship because it captures all of Christianity and who Jesus is and who we are and what we should be doing and all of these things. It's the center thing. It's the mark of the church. You go throughout history. You go around the world, and somehow, in some way, they're at the table. John minimizes that. He kind of replaces it with the washing of feet, which the other Gospels mention 
But John makes it stand out. Because what John is saying is that the people of God, yeah, 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 were people who meet at the table. Not minimize, I suppose. But John wants us to say, listen, you need to understand something. This love-fueled, humble service, this irrational, shocking, humble service is what the church should be in whatever form it can take it on. That when people hear the church, they hear love-driven, humble service that's irrational and shocking and humble and not grasping for the grandiose but stripped down as slaves for the sake of others. Even those who are paving the way for our crucifixion, even those who will betray us and deny us, because that is the way of Jesus. And it needs to be the way of the church. And it needs to be the way of my life, and it needs to be the way of your life if you follow Jesus. Because we've been served. And once we've been served, it demands a response. And so when I'm not living these love, this love-fueled, humble service like I should, when I, when I walk past that garbage in the parking lot, when I leave the downstill stairwell to less, i got to go back and say, man, what, what is missing in, in my life here? Is, is the love of God, is it, is it dimming? I don't grasp by God's love and service me so much that I'm, that I'm driven to carry it on. Is it, is it because I think, you know, well, you know, I'm a little bit above Jesus. I'm a bit more busy than Jesus was. Is it because I don't care if Jesus says at the end, well done, good and faithful service. Is it because I've forgotten that the mark of a Christian and the mark of a church is love-fueled, humble service. Which one of those am I missing? Well, as it says in the movies, you've been served. Now how are we going to respond? Jesus, um, sometimes I think that we, we hear these stories so much that we... Um, I lose the impact. This incredible act of foot washing, of your love driving you to serve, to serve as a slave and to wash feet and to serve as a slave and be crucified. An undignified death. Jesus, we thank you for this service. We thank you that by trusting in you, by faith in you, we can be washed clean. Our sins can be washed away. And that each day as we live out this new life and we realize our shortcomings, that we can come to you again and we can, we can confess them and to say, Lord, you know, yeah, I know I, I blew it again and I thank you that I'm forgiven. And that's like you washing our feet. It maintains that relationship. It reminds us of who you are and who we are to be in response to that. 
We're amazed, God. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, to continue to form in us this character of Jesus and to live out that character in love-fueled, humble service. And to use whatever opportunities we have, whatever authority we have, whatever wealth we have, whatever prestige we have, whatever status we have, whatever it is that we've been given, to live out these lives of radical, irrational, shocking service. We pray through Jesus. Amen.